Hey there, welcome to the Inside Redemption Podcast. My name is Luke Simmons. I'm one of the pastors that's part of the executive team of Redemption Church and the lead pastor of Redemption Church Gateway. And this is a series of conversations that we're doing, trying to take you inside redemption, trying to lift the hood, pull back the curtain, whatever analogy you want to use, to just try to help those of you who call Redemption Church home and really care about what's going on across the 10 congregations. We want to give you insight into different leaders, different people, help you get to know them, uh, their past, their story, what they've uh, kind of had a shaping influences in their life as well as what they're doing now. And so today I'm excited to welcome uh, one of my good friends, Aaron Daly. Aaron, welcome to Inside Redemption. Welcome. Yeah. Do you even bring your own I sound effects? Cheering. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's pretty great. Exactly. And you we, have a great radio voice. Luke. You do too, man. I'm you telling you, if I could add some have, food. like faces for radio, so it's pretty, it's pretty good. <laughs> exactly, but, exactly. Uh, yeah, Aaron, it's good to have you. It's uh, great to be here. I've listened to every episode or most of it. Let me put it that sure. way. I don't. I've I've listened to almost all of them. Yeah, awesome. Neil's was probably my favorite so far. I like Prather. Yeah, I've enjoyed all of them. Good, good. Yes. Well, I'm glad you've been listening, and and uh, you know, we hope that you have. Uh, those of you listening have checked out the, especially the talks that we released from the Inside Redemption live event we did. Uh, I was really encouraged by how that turned out. Aaron, I got to kind of co-host that with your wife, Dana. It but to hear honor. Seth uh, Trout and Josh Butler speak, man, it was like. Amazing. It was so, yeah, it was just so good. So thoughtful, so thought-provoking. Um, I had people from yeah. other churches that got to listen in on that. Pastors, other places hit me up and just felt like. It was so helpful mm. and so thoughtful. And then inside the church, just hearing text happen and saying, Dana's doing a great job or this is happening. It was fun. And it, I yeah. felt like it was a lot of work that every person up there put into it, but it was worth it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, really encouraging. And it's fun to just, especially when you, you sort of let those guys that are a little bit more have the real strong theological muscles that, just a little bit more yeah well maybe a lot more and in Seth's case more muscle yeah, muscles seriously. um but uh to to watch them get to use that yeah and kind of really because i feel like there is you know there's always a sense when you're when you're developing a sermon is you're always kind of you have this giant you know set of you know just all this content that you have to kind of figure out how do i get this down into like a shot yeah. glass and knowing how can i make it as helpful to this broad audience and so to be able to kind of let those guys be wound up and and just go for it it was really really fun yeah so well and good I'm glad job. That, yeah thank you man thanks. thanks for putting that all together yeah and i'm glad you're here with us and uh so i want to start with your story um well i guess first just so people have a context for it so you're one of the lead pastors at redemption alhambra yes and you're also part of the executive team and we're going to talk about that and what that looks like yeah and, uh, all, a bunch of the different hats that you wear but let's start kind of with your story so okay you are one of how many brothers? Six boys in the daily household. So I'm one of six. So your parents and then six boys. Yes. Any girls? No girls. No girls. It was all all males in all the house. Males. Except my mother. And you're what number? In I'm order? the second oldest. Okay. So there's Ben, Benjamin, Aaron, Joshua, Isaac, Caleb, and Micah. All okay. old. Can Testament you do that names. again? This is like uh, <laughs> I could with like those. that Goodwill Hunting <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. part where he rattles off the I, names I, of his I, pretend. Nobody brothers. has to remember them, but okay. if you do remember the third son, I'm going to get. There's a prize for the listener tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, where did you grow up? So, I actually was born in Seattle, Washington, and then my dad 
planted churches, pastored churches throughout his life. So we kind of moved around, but most of my life was, or at least the years I remember was in the central coast of California. Okay. Arroyo Grande and Lompoc, which are just right there on the central coast of California. So that was be kind of like middle school, high school kind of yeah, time? Yeah, exactly. Late into my, I we actually got there my third grade years. So I mean, okay, and then, but then we moved into middle school, high school in Lompoc. So what's the spread on the brothers? They're all four years apart. So I mean, Holy when my, smokers. when my brother so was getting married, years? my mom was pregnant. Oh so my God. Yeah, it's crazy. And there's actually a bigger gap between four to five, which is like six years. So there's like, wow. there's, it's, it's a, it's a gap, bro. Wow. So every four years there's yeah. a daily brother. Yes. So man, I'm just thinking about the hand-me-down challenge. I know that there's creates, no like, hand-me-downs. That's for sure. Yeah. And there's like all kinds of, I mean, by the time it's not like you could get, Hey, take this from your brother. There's he's already moved on. Wow. And so you're, you were growing up in a ministry family. Was your mom pretty involved in the ministry also? Yeah. My mom and dad are, they're a gift, man. So they planted churches in the, in, in the States. But then when I got out of uh, high school and moved on, they actually uh, moved to the Middle East and planted churches throughout the Middle East. So Kuwait and the Philippines and all kinds of places, they have a, ch- a network of churches Probably 50 churches have been planted through, it's called Life Con- Life Connection Network. Okay. And it's a bunch of churches. So, I mean, they were doing church planning before church planning was like yes. a thing a lot of people were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any idea where that heart came from? My dad just really had a heart to raise up leaders and then to kind of send them out. They have a discipleship method that's, you know, uh, multiplying disciples throughout, you know, through a method of discipleship. And as they've raised up leaders, they just started planting them out in these in these places. So it's wow. been really cool. And so I, I would guess that since you're a pastor now and you were a church planner, that you must have had at least a somewhat decent experience growing up in a ministry family. I think so. I honestly believe that, you know, because of the type of pastor my dad was, and the way that he engaged with ministry and all that kind of stuff, there was a lot of health there. Now, with that, you know, it's not perfect, and there's all kinds of ways that all of us as sons have done different types of ministry and learned from maybe mistakes and all that kind of stuff. But having my parents was just a huge gift for for us, and they're actually now back in Phoenix and a part of Alhambra, you know, oh, wow. attending. So that's awesome. Having them around now is, is a huge gift. So there's, it's, it's been a, a, a huge gift to see the generational pass down from my parents. What was, uh, what was the most fun part of having a dad as a pastor? The funnest part, man, that's a great question. I think it just gave us a lot of access to really, once we felt called to have a lot of, you know, a lot of opportunities that we probably wouldn't have had if we were just, you know, not able. So I, w- I started preaching in the pulpit. This is not going to be, you know, the best sermons, but I did my first sermon at 14 on a Sunday morning. So not many people are going to get those opportunities. Super young. And we were thank, doing a family. Thank God. I not know. many people are going to get those opportunities. Seriously. It was a unique what contest. What do you have to say? It was, uh, it was it a 14 year old. It was a family series, like on a, okay. on how to be a family. And they were doing one on like 
children, you know? And so he had me talk some, some stuff there. Okay. And then I was doing some like, uh, things. So to get in the pulpit, to be sure. like exposed in those places is not like, uh, an opportunity when you're that, you know, that you're going to get for sure. For sure. Yeah. So what were some of the most frustrating pressures you felt? Oh man, dude, pa- being a pastor's kid is, is not the best when it comes to you trying to protect your family from, you know, the attacks that come from the outside in and the hurt you see them face and all those kinds of things. So watching them navigate through abandonment and hurt and rejection and loss is just hard to process as a kid. Did they, um, did they kind of wear it on their sleeve? Did did you know what was going on? Did they try to protect you from it? They were very protective. They didn't necessarily talk to us about it, but it's hard to totally isolate you from the church community. You hear stuff being said and you'll, you know, hear wind of stuff and all those kinds of things, but you never know exactly. And it's part of that makes it difficult because of what it is, you know, uh, you know, there's more going on, but you can't get involved with it as much. And then you see them wrestling through it and you can't say much cause you don't know all that's taking place. My mom and dad, I, I think did a great job. Most of their children are still like in actively in ministry in different forms. So it's not like they made their kids hate church a, a bunch, yeah. but at the same time watching that is, is difficult. I, I was having a, I, my oldest son 20, I tried to do what the best I could to try to keep him involve the church but even recently i mean we were driving he's like dad it's hard not to get numb to people just taking off even if you don't know why sure they just leave and they're all of a sudden deeply in your life and then deeply out of your life in a in a very contrasting way you can go something doesn't line up like they were living in your home and then now they won't talk to you is like a huge you know it's a huge contrast and kids have to process that in a pretty i don't know in mature way, maybe, yeah. you know, so there's a lot your folks did, did really well. That's obviously made you kind of, at least in part, want to be a pastor. Yeah. I don't assume that's the only thing. W- what's something that you said, like, I'm going to do this inten- intentionally differently than the than way my family. Up. Yeah. One thing. So I'll say the thing that I, N- not, no disrespect, to no them disrespect, or, but, yeah. but just going like, Hey, here's something that I said. Yeah. In, in my, in our family's life, we're going to do this different. Yeah. So I think for my parents and I don't know where this came from my parents really felt a burden to kind of have us go off in an individual way and kind of do our own kind of ministry thing that felt like hey you're gonna you're gonna go off and there was a big pressure to kind of to kind of go do your own thing um I really have intentionally tried as a kid or as they kind of launched you out of the home yeah, I mean that carried on, but it started really young, okay. you know. Um, with my kids, it's like what what was the expect or what were you? What was your thing? And maybe this wasn't an expectation, but as a kid, I felt like it, you know. Okay, sure. Young, being prayed over, like you're going to go do this, and you're yeah. going to have this, and you're going to go minister in these ways, you know. And so I felt a lot of pressure yeah. to do that, and I think all of us as kids felt like we're going to be in ministry, and some have responded in different ways. Um, for me, I've really tried to 
allow my kids to develop a sense of calling if they want to without the expectation like of 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 being in ministry if they don't want to if they want to i would i would welcome it and try to do all that i can yeah being in ministry you mean vocationally vocational ministry yeah, yeah. And, leadership. and leadership or service in the church and those kinds of things if they're called to i want them to i really want them to feel that sense i felt a lot of pressure from it and that could have been just me feeling it or sure. it could have been you know that some that they were putting on and the context of the churches that I were in and that kind of stuff, I felt a ton of pressure to kind of really not just be a pastor, but to kind of lead in a very successful way. And that led to a lot of self-righteousness in my own heart. Like I, the way I interpreted that was like, I got this standard I got to really live up to, or I'm going to fail everybody, you know? Mm. So I've done what I can to try to both encourage, but not put pressure on my kids to kind of be, yeah, in those places, and was one of the things that uh, everyone thought you were going into was was one of it going to be music? It was, it was. Well, and I so felt that myself. For those too. of you listening, I mean, Eric Aaron is a very good singer. <laughs> yeah, and, that was uh, my thing for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was one of them for sure. One what, of what, what was kind of the the high water mark of your singing musical <laughs> career? So I don't even know if you would know the people that I'm going to say. I was discipled and raised in and drawn to mostly like black gospel music. So I listened to it. Like I would go to school playing Hezekiah Walker, John P. Key, Kirk Franklin, all these guys. And then I would sing in choir. So I spent a lot of my time like finding black gospel choirs and singing in them. I was like the only white guy on black gospel choirs and i just loved it and felt most connected was that, in that the world. musical tradition no of the church you were going on no in? no i just i felt just the most connected with it i felt the most connected to it yeah huh. and so that was kind of my area that i felt the most like in th- and actually how i got out to phoenix was a guy named james huey who led the choir that i was in in dallas texas and then he led worship out here in phoenix and that's how i got here so he wrote a song gospel song called when i think about the lord that's been recorded by tons of artists you know brooklyn tabernacle and shane and shane and all these like you know people it's like been on the wow you know (laughs) music thing and so he was one of the one of the guys that got me out here to phoenix and when i came to phoenix I sang with and was uh, Kirk Franklin for for once. So that was you like you sang the, with Kirk Franklin. I did. I didn't sing as backup, but I was hosting it, and then I sang in, and his band played behind us, and it was dude. It was like that was the apex of like the best band, the best choir. It was like you know. So I got to lead that that moment. So um, did you have any particular kind of hopes or dreams for a, more of a career in music path or? Yeah, with I thought I was going to. I mean, I felt the most like drive for it, and I played in bands. We opened up for different people, that kind of stuff. But I always kind of had a sense that I wanted to preach too. So preaching was more my, you know, where I felt the most excitement and stuff like that. But you know, it's kind of living in both worlds. And then in the circles that I grew up in, the preacher would sing often. Yeah, so sure. So. I remember when I was when I was in college, I did an independent study. I had a Christian professor, and he let me do an independent study, and uh, did it on preaching. And I read this old book by John uh, Broadus, I think is his name. It's you know hundred plus years old uh, in terms of the book, but he talked 
like one of the, there was a whole chapter on the preachers developing his singing voice. Yeah. And the importance of a preacher being good at singing in wow. order to lead the congregational songs. And I was like, well, that ain't going to work. Oh, well. <laughs> well, even like in uh, in the tradition, uh, the in the black tradition, there's a style of preaching called sing song preaching. Mm. And there's like, they're singing and they're hooping and there's all kinds of things. But then also when you come up and there's the band playing, the choir's like coming off, they'll come up and like lead and singing and stuff like that. Well, I remember so, a, a few years ago, I think you and all your brothers. Yeah went to your older brother Ben's church in, yes. in Dallas. Yes. And uh, you had kind of a panel conversation. I don't know if all six of you were there, but I think at least five of you were there. It was quite and, a few. Yeah, um, and you guys sang for a moment. Yes. Right? Yes. So we all would sing together growing up. My mom is like this incredible musician, and she like plays the piano by ear and all kinds of stuff. And so she raised us singing harmonies for like, all of our lives and so when we would come into high school we sang in quartets and choirs and all kinds of stuff and we would travel around and do all kinds of like music stuff so it was it was like all of us as boys had to learn to sing like super early we were like harmonizing since we were like babies i don't even remember not harmonizing so it was like <laughs> part of our <laughs> our upbringing so if you're in the daily house during any sort of like uh holiday thing it will it will every time go to singing in so some do, you, way or do your kids have it too i think they do my so my oldest has some music that he's been putting out that's really good um and he's got a great voice and then my uh son my other son ezra sings incredibly and does a lot of broadway stuff and same with hadessa the younger two i i'm not sure yet Okay. I'm not sure yet. Okay. We'll see. Huh. We'll see. One dances, the other one kind of cooks, and they like they like to sing. But the top three seem like they they really sing a ton. Can Dana sing? She would tell you no. She can carry a tune. She yeah. would tell you no, though. I That's kind of how I am. I think like yeah, I, you can carry a every tune. now and then. People are like, oh, you're a good singer. And it's like, eh, just it, it hit me in the right. I actually when when we planted the church, I um we had a worship leader whose wife was pregnant. And, um, so I had this like pro presenter or PowerPoint, you know, like set of songs yeah. that I knew I could, you could, sing. I could sing <laughs> and lead acapella if, if I had to. Nice. And I was always sort of hoping that I'd have to see that's, the, but she never went into labor on a Sunday. Of, and so I never, sort of hoping I never that got you to do it. <laughs> it was backup. I, and ready well, to I go. tell people all the time, I'd be an amazing worship leader if I could sing. <laughs> Just because I, I feel like that, because I feel like a lot of worship. I mean, obviously, you have to be able to sing to be a worship leader. Yeah. But the best worship leaders are just good leaders. I agree, and they're that. good at kind of exhortation and um, you know helping people kind of get into the moment. And I know, I know, I could do that well. You could do it, but the singing and the playing an instrument's a little trickier. So. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'd love to see you lead worship someday. I don't think you would. So <laughs> I'll stay in my lane just so I could have that frame of reference. So, so since I know you have those songs, I think at one of our <laughs> at one of our leadership things, we should kind of make it so that somebody gets sick and you have to lead with one of those one of those songs. Yeah. Well, let's see. If, let's see it. Let's not. <laughs> um. So, uh, Aaron, how did you how did you meet Jesus? So this is this is an interesting story and i i'm not sure being raised in the church a lot of things get muddy you know sure there's a lot of times where you feel like you know the preacher gets up and says hey do you want to come to know christ and 
heaven or hell, you know, yeah, I'll take heaven, you know. <laughs> those uh, are my choices. Those are my choices. That's what Mark I'm going to choose. Exactly. <laughs> so there was a, a many times that I feel like I had that. I'll, I'll say when I felt the most kind of conversion experience was at 14 years old. I had a, a time in actually youth group where I was, there was some music playing. This is before or after you had preached your first sermon? This had to be before. Okay, yeah, it good. was early on. Yes, Woo! yes, yes. <laughs> close call this had there. to be before. Yeah, and I, close call. Try, <laughs> try, to, try to not have unregenerate preachers that's if true. we can help it. That's true. Good point. Okay. And there's like a uh, uh, a time where I felt like the Lord really speak to me there. That mm. was for sure where there was significant change after that too. Like I could see some things happen in my life that was there and felt like, you know what? I feel like called to see what God has for me in the future mm. and lived kind of a, a pretty, what I would say, you know, regenerate life. Yeah. So maybe at that point it really even more started to become your own, my own thing. Faith. Yeah. yeah. And then when, when I, did you get baptized? I got baptized after that. So, okay. yeah. And I, I'm not sure if I got baptized super young, you know, I don't remember it. I do remember getting baptized after that, about 15 years old. And I I think, you know, there was some big hallmark moments for me and, and had a pretty good life, you know. The hard part, though, is I feel like some of my interpretation of the gospel, and this is both, I'm not sure if I interpreted it this way or it's a mix of that and the, the upbringing I had. So the gospel to me was always this thing that I was striving for, you know, like I had to reach higher. I had to shout louder. I had to sing, you know, louder. I had to put perform, you know, and some of that could be my own internal like pressure for success. And then others could just be the way it was being preached, you know, and I went to some real charismatic schools and inside of that, you know, I tried to work my way up the ladder of all these kinds of institutions and places and found myself always in leadership, you know. So I was always in a spot where I was preaching or singing or leading from a super young age. I was leading Bible clubs at my at my school. I was, you know, uh, at high school and college. I was doing all kinds of things and seeing some sort of, you know, success in those, if you will. Sure. And enjoying it. But I always felt like I was falling short you know, um, and didn't have a lens of the gospel being God entering in and just loving me, like starting with that space. And so when I planted a church, this is like a longer, you know, a longer story to one simple question. When I planted the church was right after a huge problem in church, in, in a church that I was pastoring in okay. and planted a, the uh, what is now redemption. I was only 24 years old. And so it was really young, just married, didn't have any kids. And we started out of a real broken situation. Is it a bit of like, sometimes I'll use the expression of a church splant. Yeah, it's it was. Kind of a, it's not quite a split, but it's not quite a plant. It's yeah. kind of something in between. It was, I think that's a good way to put it. I think it was more the church exploded, mm. you know, and in the pain that they were experiencing, the church went from being a pretty significant, their pastor had, you know, had an affair and there was all kinds of pain and the church went from, let's say 600 down to a few hundred and they, they didn't have any pastor, you know, okay. and the denomination I was in at the time was, you know, didn't have a category for handling that. And so they basically said, 
go off on your own, take the people that are with you, and then the other people can do wow. this kind of thing. So we we started that wow. way. I mean, that'd be know? a tough thing for a leader at 44 yeah. to lead well through, but 24. Yeah, it I'm was. thinking that would be. It was tough. And then we had, you know, it's an inner city church is where we were at. It was a bunch of people with not a ton of money. Uh, we had maybe a couple hundred that went with us at the time or that started at the time with us. And at that spot, it's not like you have a ton of money, but it's also like you have a lot of responsibility. And I went five years with this kind of performance driven type deal. Mm. And at about 29 years old, I felt like I hit a wall and had another, if you will, I don't know what to call it, but a conversion spirit experience where I felt like the Holy spirit revealed to me that I'm loved, Mm. you know? Sure. And it was the first time that I felt like I didn't have to earn something from God yeah. and that I heard the gospel. And that's actually where I came into kind of reform teaching. I had never heard that there was this type of grace that yeah. was beyond being earned, you know, and in that spot, I felt like not only did I experience grace, it wasn't like a doctrinal ascent. It was like God met me in this place and like rescued me and showed me his love. And we replanted at that time. And there was so much change that it felt like a conversion, you know. And I think that's around the time that you and I first met. Exactly. Correct. That was the time. And yeah. it's interesting because in the, you know, in the years leading up to that, I had a similar kind of experience. I, I actually would kind of say, I think I've had post my conversion, yeah. conversion, like being born again. I feel like I've had two or three other yeah. conversion-like experiences. It, not in that I, all of a sudden I was going to heaven. And, right. But, but like, exactly. you know, just the scales seemed to fall off my eyes in some ways. And, you know, it was like, man, I see the world. And like, it just went from yes. like black and white to color to HD, you know, yep. that kind of a thing. And I, and I had a similar experience around the gospel, around that sense of, you know, hey, you really are loved. Yeah. You really are um, adored by God. You're adopted as his child. Um, you know, where the, the gospel went not, it kind of went out of the the law courtroom yeah. and into the adoption courtroom. That's exactly it. You know, and that's a big shift. It's huge. And it's like, it made me question everything I had preached beforehand. I mean, you're talking about, now I'm a lead pastor, I'm running a church or whatever, and we're, you know, and it feels like, man, I should have known this stuff before, um, questioning a lot of things that I had said earlier, repenting of a lot of things that I had said earlier, um, and seeing that even the way that I had been discipling or leading people was out of this performance mentality. And the, the way I was trying to earn places with God I was trying to put that on other people also. Mm. I, I mean, we have a, a a unique congregation we can get into, but it's a lot of people who've come out of addictions and drugs and uh, economically depraved people, all kinds of, you know, all kind of people who felt rejection. But then they run to all kinds of addictions, you know. And I can think of before the gospel, seeing someone, you know, a guy that, is still a friend of mine who had a meth addiction that was just so strong. And here I am like this dude who's been raised in the church, loves the inner city, but have not experienced addictions like this to this level. Sure. And the best that I could tell this guy was like, just stop. Like 
it's just stop. Like you're yeah, ruining you your life. About not doing that. Yeah, exactly. And like all of a sudden, I thought that was the best revelation. Like, oh, you've never thought of stopping before, you right. know? Sure. And that was like the all I could tell him: just stop doing this. And I think back on that time, that's literally how I felt all the time, just in a different wheel. Yeah. You know, like I should just be able to stop. I should just be able to fix this stuff, perform. Felt rejected. I would preach and lead worship and everything because I was like, sure. That I, planting days i didn't have all this stuff and and i was doing and then go home and sleep for like two days in depression you know wow. or whatever just i couldn't get out of bed my wife would be worried about me what are you doing like and i just i, I didn't know i never felt like i could do as much as god would like mm. of me the freedom i experienced from the gospel was what launched us into all kinds of like reaching out to new friends. We met you at that time, Tyler, all the, you know, what is now redemption is when we really started going, we just need new friends, people who can help us like yeah. discover these things we've never heard before. Yeah. So it was like a huge shift of not only the theology, but it was practically we're in a whole new circle mission wise. We're in a whole new circle. We're like discovering new things. So it was an exciting time, but it was a huge change. So it felt yeah. like a conversion. Yeah. So, how old are you now? 43. 43. Yeah. And um, so I'm thinking about you, you. Okay, you're 43. You start preaching when you're 14. Yeah. You're doing music. You're doing, you just said, every everywhere I went, I got put in leadership. Yep, yep. And so your talent outpaced your maturity. Absolutely. From the beginning. Yep. I feel like one of the things we just are seeing and living in the in the church right now it's just gobs and gobs of leaders whose talent outpaced their maturity. Yeah. And it's a huge crash. So uh, that hasn't happened for you. Yeah. Why not? Grace, bro. You know, I mean, that's, that's the only thing. I feel like God rescued me from myself more than anything. You know, I, the rat race of like trying to reach the top and trying to get to you know, a level of success in ministry and that kind of stuff that he withheld from me because he loves me, you know, and I, if I, you know, the dreams that I had for ministry look nothing like where I'm at at this point, but I feel like that's grace, like that he gave me not what I wanted. He gave me what he, he, he had planned for me. And I really do think another thing is after the, conversion type experience i really said i need to get in a new circle of people and redemption which it wasn't at the time but the friends that came from you know redemption church was good discipleship it was a whole new way of seeing life and you know through surge and all these kinds of friendships that are developing and i just ate it up i mean i went through everything i could take you know mtc and surge school and all this i'm like and it wasn't like for me it wasn't like i want to get I was like, I was hungry. Like this yeah. is. Well, I remember that. Heard I, of this. I had planted an X twenty nine church around that time. Yeah, you were kind of replanting Life Connection yep. Church, and it was joining X twenty nine. I think that's how you and I met. You know, X twenty nine for those that aren't familiar, it's kind of a church planting network that at the time, especially, was really a kind of theological fraternity. Yep. for people trying to pursue a gospel centered approach to ministry that had kind of a mission edge to it, and so. Um, even when redemption happened, uh, originally it was Praxis yep. in East Valley Bible. Praxis, I think, was the first Acts 29 church in Arizona. And then we joined in with redemption. And then a couple years later, 
uh, you and the leaders at Alhambra joined in. Yeah. Um, but that was really out of having, uh, at that point, a few years of relationship. Yes. And I do remember that. I remember you going like, hey, a lot of this stuff is new to me. And I remember you just coming with a great deal of humility and saying like, there's a ton here that I'm realizing I did wrong. Yeah. And a ton that I need to do totally different. And um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's the kind of thing you sort of hope people would come to a realization. Yeah. So maybe even the grace, if I'm just kind of hearing your story, some of the grace was the Lord allowing you to come to the end of yourself. Yes. Yes. It wasn't the grace of growth. Yeah. The grace of success. That might have actually really damaged kept you from so in a sense it was sort of the limitations and i don't know if failure is too strong of a word or not yeah but it was it was that that kind of drove you into the ground was kind of the humbling you needed i that's yeah that's not too hard of a word i i think so many times we when we have this kind of mentality of success being x y and z like i did and reaching the top the fact that the lord would not allow me to reach, if you will, that level that I was really wanting and show me what I really wanted is not what I, what I really wanted, <laughs> you know, yeah. and he had to change my desires. And, and a lot of that has been enjoying now what redemption and what the new church that we have here is, is a lot of like just being able to enjoy the family that God's given to me and seeing the community that we're placed in and how he sovereignly kept us there for so many years and how he's worked through this. You know, we've been in the same neighborhood now for 20, 22 years and to have the friendships and the connections and the relationships and all that kind of stuff and the people the now being a part of redemption, it's like watching God just kind of work through mm -hmm. that, even in the midst of my immaturities and sin and failures that he's like taken this crooked strict crooked stick and made straight lines out of it. It's that type deal that he's worked through it. And, and, and that's just to me how sovereign he really is and his grace that he would take somebody like me and be able to use it. So it's mm -hmm. been, it's been fun and there's been a lot of conversions through that and things that God's worked through, but all of that to say his work and then surrounding me with, I think really good people to disciple me in a different way has been both like why his protection has been there. Yeah. All right. So I got a random question here. Go for it. I'm curious what, and this has a point of the following people, who do you think is the most talented performer? Okay. Okay. So we've got, <laughs> are you going to give me names that I'm, I'm going to know? You, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Go. When I say performers, who's the most talented? Okay. Okay. So Jamie Foxx. Okay. Hugh Jackman. Okay. Uh, Will Smith. Ooh. Justin Timberlake. Wow. Who do you well, I, Hugh Jackman, I'm not drawn to him, so I, I can bring it. I like Justin Timberlake. I think he's fantastic. Okay. I'm going to go with Jamie Foxx. Why is that? I he's, thought you. I thought you were going to say him. You did? <laughs> well, if Will Smith was a little bit... If he was still doing new stuff, he might be in the running. But I, I like I Will Smith, too. I like Justin Timberlake. But I think Jamie Foxx is hilarious, one. And mm -hmm. he he's not just a singer. He's an actor. I enjoy him big time. Well, all those guys are both have musical careers and acting careers. Yeah. Jamie Foxx also, I think, in That's a third way, has like a comedy career. He does. Comedy, acting. You're right. They all have it. So that's a well, tough one, but I'm drawn to Jamie Foxx. Jamie Fox. Yes. And his voice, 
his singing voice uh-huh. is just old, like yeah, old R and B. Sure, that just resonates. When he with does me. great impressions, yeah, he's super talented. Well, the reason I ask is because you remind me of those guys. Yeah. So yeah, I oh, feel wow. like I Hugh feel like, Jackman too. Well, yeah. give me Hugh Jackman. You got to tell me well, why. I, I don't mean them specifically, <laughs> you know. But but here, what I mean is like I think in show business, there's yeah. a lot of people who can act, and there's a lot of people who can sing. There aren't very many who do both, and there really aren't very many who do both well. Good point. And um, n- not that it's like oh, you can preach and you can sing, though you can do that. But I feel like you have this. Um, God's wired you as a kind of crossover, multi. Uh, That's kind multi-connected like i feel like in any space you go to you fit wow and luke you're encouraging me right now i appreciate yeah, it. i mean like you come preach at redemption gateway which is you know 88 percent white and very suburban and upper middle class and they just eat you up oh wow right you preach you know in a Home game at Redemption Alhambra, which is a really different context from that, and they love you. Yeah. And I feel like everywhere you go, it's not about that people love you. Like, that's whatever. But it's mostly, like, you just have an ability to connect in a lot of different areas. Like, I think you could you could take over. Here's what I mean, and, and not to – it's not about comparison, but, like, you could take over as the lead pastor at Redemption Gateway be fine. I, I could know. not take over at Redemption <laughs> Alhambra and be fine. Well, I the, and, and and you know you can push back on sure. that, or whatever. But I know I'm right about that. <laughs> at least let's at least just say you'd have a better shot, a better shot, okay, at Gateway <laughs> than I would have at leading Alhambra. <laughs> and um, and I don't say that to compare as much as I say to like that's really pretty cool. Thank and so you. in that way, I feel like you're like those artists that I mentioned. Um, and so I'm curious with that kind of. With that ability, with that sort of talent, with that sort of like, you know, every room you go into, it just lights up and people wow. connect with you. Um, in a sense, you picked the, the, I don't know, the least impressive. <laughs> in, in a, yeah, sure. Right? And we believe in redemption. Yeah. There's no little people, yeah. no little places. Right. Everyone matters. But like you, you could have gone in an area of ministry where you could have a much larger church you could have gone in an area where you had much bigger sort of platform. You intentionally chose to plant in a community that is among the working poor in, in general. Right. Um, and you've kind of, and not only that, but you've, you've always, at least since I've known you, but this might've been a change from your earlier ministry. You've always done it in such a team that has made you not necessarily the star of the show. Yeah. And so I'm just so intrigued by that. Like, because you could be the solo, you know, the headlining yeah. performer at something bigger, wealthier, more expensive, more more worldly impressive, even in the church world, than kind of a, you know, under-resourced, overlooked community yeah. Yeah. where you're just part of the team. Well, that's kind. Why? Right? Why? There's a lot of... A lot of answers to that you're so good at asking questions dude i'm telling you well that one took me like 12 minutes to get no that's incredible and it's encouraging so i would just say a couple of things that come to mind i feel lucky man to be discipled in the circles that i have even to like the new the new you know circles of in redemption i felt so drawn to the the friends that we have there so i i'm lucky by that 
early on though, I don't know how, but I do believe it was God. I got connected in black and brown spaces early on and felt was that immediate. some of that through the gospel music? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And 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 that was a that was definitely an inroad. But a lot of my friends and then even pastors that I was drawn to There's that one white guy in the choir. Yeah, exactly. We feel bad for him. Let's <laughs> but, let's see what he's up to. And it could be that. It could be the feel bad for or they made me feel like family so fast. Mm. And, and it it was like uh, it was always so impressive to me how like I could go into a space where I don't fit and feel like, you know, man, I belong here. You know, there was so much love and acceptance immediately. And it was almost like I, the way I describe it, I don't know how to explain it, but when you go into a room, they start with acceptance and mm. then they get suspicious in a lot of white spaces that I've also grown up in it's like you start with suspicion and then you have to earn acceptance mm. you know and there's like a well, maybe even some of the pressure you were feeling with some of that oh big time yeah and there's all kinds of like ways that cultures like relate to each other sure so being able to have multicultural like experience in my life i felt really lucky by the other thing is i felt more comfortable so like even if i'm able to adjust uh, i felt more comfortable in those spaces mm. i felt more myself let's say you know and i felt like i could be more myself in that space and in those places i all of my preachers that i looked up to all of the singers that i looked up to the whole thing was like that kind of room and it didn't feel like i had as many barriers now i don't know why i think the lord opened do doors for me and that kind of stuff but i also help, think it helped me learn to what now people are calling and i don't i don't know it, how if it triggers anything or not but it code switching these ideas of most most people who are in minority spaces have to go into rooms and learn to adapt in whatever room they're in they sure. just they do it naturally and they have to do it um, because they're multicultural like they are always in multiple spaces yeah in I, I heard culture. it explained by a guy this way he said you know this was a, a black guy he was saying you know in order to kind of thrive in my work setting i need to know about seinfeld yeah but a lot of yeah. people i work with don't have to know about martin exactly yeah no that's that's a great and point I've, and i've never watched seinfeld <laughs> yeah and it seems fine but i have to know about the characters and i have to be comfortable in both worlds i it may that's that code switch it is it is one you go in you know you have to know a lot of things about it so like i remember coming up I started listening to certain music that was pop music because the people that I was going around were making references to like this music, not music I listened to. So I remember laying in my bed, turning the radio on, trying to learn like the middle parts of songs just so I could go in and like communicate hmm. with songs that I didn't like, you know. And because I knew they weren't going to like mine, so I had to learn like different songs to try to get like, oh, we have this connection or we can we can figure it out. And I think there's ways in which that's been helpful for me and ways that, you know, has allowed me to to do that. And then also I think it's just wiring, you know, God makes people different, different ways. Did you ever, did you ever think, because especially, I mean, you, your ministry has largely taken place in... I don't know the language you would call it. Some people call it the inner city. Yeah. Uh, were there ever times when you just thought, man, this is too hard? Like yeah, all oh, the addiction sure. stuff, all the for stuff sure. you were talking about earlier, like, gosh, this would just be easier if I was in a more yes. comfortable spot. Yes. So there was a... Was that ever like... A, 
the thing that I was live enamored, option? yes, the thing that I was enamored by was the money and the like the buildings and stuff like that. So I remember like driving around town, and my brother and I like wrote this song of jealousy, lament and jealousy. That went, why not me, Lord? Why not me? <laughs> we just say, drive by a building, and I wanted the building, so I'd just sing, why not me, Lord? Why not me? So I would just sit and just lament that I couldn't have it, you know? And I always felt like that kind of lament in me for, like, I wish I had those things. But then I, I just always had a distaste, and, like, I would go into rooms so that I'm like, if I have to make that trade, of being in kind of the typical at the time American Western church, then I was like, I don't, I don't want to be there either. You know what I mean? So if that was the trade I had to make, then I was like, I'm, I just, I know I'm not sure. Yeah. So I would go and because I still have connections there with family and friends, I would be like, ah, that's not me either. So it was always a wrestle. You know, I definitely wanted it, yeah. but I, what I wanted was the money and the buildings. I didn't really want the people that would come along with those monies and buildings. So it was kind of like a, a tension point for me all the sure. time. You know? Well, one of the things that I even appreciate about as you talk about that is knowing like you have convictions and you have preferences, but you also do a great job of honoring people with whom you differ. Yeah, right. For sure. So like you would go, yeah, if I had to make that trade, I, I wouldn't make it. But you are still friends with people who are in those oh, kind of for environments sure. and yeah. really respect them and really enjoy them. And that's always meant a lot to me. Big time. I do have a lot of friends there still and still preach in spaces like that. And, and I, I feel like I can go in and appreciate. But I also know that the thing you put out on front, even for Alhambra, the, what you show up front, there's always like tensions and pains and struggles behind the scenes. Yeah. That are the costs that took you to get to this spot, you know? Sure. And, and I know that those things are there. I just never felt, I don't know if I was ever enamored by what it took to get there, you know, cause yeah. I've seen my family and struggles that was there. So I, I was cost benefit type deal. Yeah. So rewind the clock a little bit. Okay. Uh, how long ago was it that Alhambra joined redemption? I think it was 2014, 2014. Yeah. Okay. So you were life connection church. By 2014, Redemption had been going for about three years. Yeah. And um, why did you guys want in? And what did it mean to the congregation yeah. when it happened? So with the conversions that took place, um, one of the things that struggles within the inner city um, for us is you get into this place and you realize how hard it is and everybody realizes how hard it is, what you can develop a mentality that we're the only ones doing it and that we're, you know, we're the only pure true church type deal. And you could see all the, you know, hypocrisies of maybe bigger church. You can develop a kind of a tribalism, even in just your purity that we really care for the poor and we really do all these things. But as I was developing relationships and friendships and had a conversion into grace, I'm going, man, these people that I'm developing relationships with, you guys had a humility, even even eyes open to your own context, you know, like, and saw your own struggles within your churches and, and all those kinds of things. And those friendships were like eye opening to me to where I'm going like, Hey, even if we differ in context, there was a, a similar heart. And so I actually approached redemption and said, Hey, you say you want to be a church for the city and, and, and want to plant in all kinds of neighborhoods, but you're only really planting in these types of neighborhoods. What if we already have the friendship and the trust and the 
could we discover if we could do this together and started the conversation but it was even like a two or three year conversation right um that before we well, I remember when it happened we were still very much like a frankenstein yeah where you had kind of joined these bodies together and we're trying to figure out what it all meant and you were going hey can we join in too and there was a little bit of like oh gosh like not not for sure of you yeah, or yeah. or the context or anything but mostly it's just like what would it mean to have one more group yes. in here like yes that feels like that would be challenging i remember describing it that i would tell the elders every time i come to them to ask them if they're interested it's like trying to hit on a girl who thinks she's ugly but is really beautiful and you're trying to go man i'm really attracted to you and they keep <laughs> no we're so ugly we don't we, there's nothing great about us and you guys would keep telling me all the things that are just bad about redemption and i'm like yeah but you guys look great from the outside <laughs> you know everything looks good <laughs> so it was like two years of you self-deprecating yourself before we finally said okay we should do this. And so you got into it, and who was right? I think you guys were wrong. I still think redemption <laughs> downplays itself too much. I personally I think, think. we were probably both right. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. I mean, honestly, like, you know, I had, a, I had a coach in college who would say, uh, you're never as good as you think. You're yeah. never as bad as you think. That's a good point. You know? And that's not a good doctrine of sin. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you are worse than you think when yeah, it comes yeah. to sin. Sure. But I think there's some truth to that. Like, there's parts of redemption that... Uh, are a lot better than people think and yeah. a lot parts that are probably worse. And, That's true. And I'm not sure we always can tell. It's interesting being one though, that kind of came in with not being, having the history with like East Valley and redemption and all the things that were there. Like I didn't have that history. So, but I had a totally different one. So it's almost like a little bit of an adoption rather than a birth type deal. Well, There's I'm curious a about this because one of the things when redemption happened in the original merger, it was a bit like a blended family yeah. where it's like these parents have been dating, but all the kids don't know yeah. each other. Yeah. That's a good point. Right? I remember that was like, you know, you had all these leaders who'd spent multiple years, you know, having lunch and praying and True. working on surge school and lots of other stuff and all these staff people and leaders and members who are like, I don't know them. I don't know them. Um, so I'm curious what did it mean to to the church body? Because I, I would think there'd be a potential for a church in a more under-resourced place connecting with a predominantly kind of yeah. white, more resourced yeah. set of congregations. I could see some folks potentially going like, uh, yeah. are we trying to be somebody we're not? Are we trying to, like, are are th are those folks going to understand us? Yeah. Um, how much... How much of that was there? And then just what did it mean? So I don't, we, we tried to prepare for that. And I think what was healthy about the process to your point is redemption leadership at that time kept saying, dude, if you guys became less diverse, you know, would that bother you? And here's what's going to happen if you're not careful. And, you know, a lot of like sober thinking when it came to it. So I was kind of, not things we were rooting for. No, just things we thought, Hey, if this happens, if this happens, are you okay? Are you okay? And happens, I was like, no, I'd leave the church too. <laughs> so there would be all kinds of like, well, you, if you're going to join, it was a lot of vetting, if you will. And I think healthy, a lot of good conversations and you guys going, we don't want to change the culture. That's, you know, there but the bigger thing will swallow up if you're if you're not careful it was a lot of great so i was kind of preparing for the worst and i think there's health in that but for for us like when we announced it we had such a celebration i remember january 1st they planned this huge party when we were officially going to be and they stayed up till midnight and did this huge like celebration and made this cake that we're becoming a part of redemption 
And after that, it was such a whirlwind, Luke. Like we adopted a like four congregations merged in, and we we're like yeah, other other churches, other in the area churches that were kind of joined in. And, yeah, and then we got a, a, I mean, building, a building giving, was given to you, and that's like yeah. two months after we announced it. Right. So like the church we are today versus the church, and then all nobody staff. I mean, I was bivocational that we didn't have staff, so it was like trying to go through this whirlwind. I think God graciously used both that kind of shift and change, but also the whirlwind of it to really make a new thing. Redemption Alhambra feels so different than what Life Connection was mm. because of all of those kind of things that took place. And yeah. now with Wayne and all the things you mentioned earlier, it really does feel like a new church. Well, and I, I'd say, you know, in my vantage point, Redemption Gateway, I think we feel like a different church than we did when we yeah. were second mile. Yeah. That was the church I had planted. I think I mentioned to you recently, you know, in the countercultural convictions series that uh, that has been going on this fall, you know, one of the messages was on the vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think I told you after our preaching collective about that, you know, this is not, I don't know that this yep. is a message that I would have preached if we were still second mile church. Yeah. Um, not because I think God doesn't care about the vulnerable, but it, I don't know that it would have been on my radar right. to the degree that it is because of the the plurality and the diversity and the all the multiple strengths. Like it wouldn't have. You, I don't know that our doctrinal statement at Second Mile Church would have ever had a conviction related to the poor and overlooked. Mm. And so that's one of the things where I think, like, man, when we talk about being better together, I know that's how. It's one of the ways I'm better as yeah. a leader is because even even as I was preaching, I was going like, this is like, you know, trying to find a verse in the Bible that doesn't involve the poor is mm. kind of like trying to find something at the grocery store without gluten. Come like on, it's bro. really hard. Like, <laughs> it's everywhere. That's you know? a good point. I like and, that. Um, and yet it was like, here's this thing that's everywhere and I'm missing it, mm. you know? And so I feel like you and other leaders – and Redemption Alhambra in particular and West Mesa have just really done a lot to help get some of that stuff on, I like that. on my radar. And yeah. I think we're all better. That's a good point. Um, so I'm curious when you, when you think about Alhambra, um, you've gone through a bit of a, of a transition there that yeah. I think is also pretty interesting to people that care about redemption. So when, when you joined in in 2014, you were the lead pastor uh, over time. Wayne Winter became kind of a co-lead pastor, and that's yeah. probably still the titles. Yeah. Um, but increasingly, even, it seems like, you know, Wayne has even more leadership, and a lot of people probably think of him as kind of more the lead pastor of Alhambra than yes. uh, at least initially when that happened. So talk about that. How did that decision get made? How did you decide to move that direction? Yeah. Um, again, it's like that's not something I think of most leaders in their late thirties yeah. kind of coming into their prime would go, you know what? I should probably try to figure out a way to share this lead pastor role. Yeah. So with knowing all my background and stuff, there's a little bit of weirdness when it comes to multi-ethnic church that I'm, I believe and have a deep passion for. And I think you know that about me sure. and the vulnerable. So reconciliation around race and then also just, care for the not just care but community with the vulnerable yeah um are two things that i just can't get away from in my life um so when we became a part of redemption and a lot of conversations became very evident around racial reconciliation um 
a lot of things that I had been dreaming of for a long time that the Lord just kind of put in me as far as pastoring in a multi-ethnic environment became more clear, you know, like there's no way to do this um, multi-ethnic thing if we can't, if we can't do it from the top down, you know? Um, and just for context, for people that aren't familiar with Alhambra, Redemption Alhambra, yeah, is there a majority ethnicity at Alhambra? That would be interesting to like find out exact. But when you, when I look out there at this point, I was just telling Wayne, we were having communion and people were walking up. I was like, I had never been in this diverse of a church in my life. And I've gone to a lot of churches. Yeah. I mean, I was there a few months ago and I would not, it would be hard for me to, yeah, I can't tell to, to gauge like, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's mixed big yeah, time. Sure. So I, 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 I mean, maybe not. It's, yeah. it's either pretty, way. It's either a very diverse, it's very diverse. Yeah. So you're looking at the the diversity of the congregation and feeling like maybe the leadership needs to match that. Yeah. And I think when, when someone does it as a strategy, I've seen it fail big time, you know, like let's, it's just hire, window dressing. At that yes, point. exactly. Let's hire Tokenism. some black person or miss, and let's try to diversify that way. But we've had friendships for a long time in our elder team, you know, and that kind of stuff. And Wayne's gifts are just evident. And I was sitting in a meeting where they brought a bunch of pastors together to kind of talk about multi-ethnic church and why, you know, cause it was right in the hot button of like all these conversations, like why are churches not multi-ethnic kind of stuff? And they brought me in to kind of ask questions. And somebody said like, imagine if there was a white pastor who like, who like really just felt this so strongly that he would be willing to, you know, give his pulpit away. And it wasn't like somebody wasn't saying it to me, you know, cause mm -hmm. we're already at that point, pretty multi-ethnic, but I felt like the spirit like said it to me. Like it was mm -hmm. like, Aaron, you've, I've been telling you this for a long time and I could, I was hard for me to breathe in that moment. I felt like the pressure in my chest Wow! and I was like, started crying and I left the room and wow. I called Tyler and I just said, dude, I have to tell you, I've been dreaming of this for a long time. And I don't know what this means. I haven't even talked to anybody, but I I know Wayne and I need to like if we really want to do this. I felt in like I felt the spirit like putting pressure on me, if you will. Mm. Like this is something you I've been telling you to do for a long time. So I then and, and so to some degree, to some degree that was appointing Wayne to that, but it was also kind of it sounds like really recognizing yes Wayne's leadership yes like. Absolutely. Which is really how leadership ought to work, right? Yeah. Let's recognize what God's already doing. Let's recognize who's already leading. Let's recognize who's That's already. It. It was but there was definitely on. some some stepping back that you needed to do so that Wayne could kind of step Absolutely. back. Absolutely. And I think that was, you know, the harder part for people to understand um, how that would operate is like we already had a friendship. He was already preaching and leading. People already saw him as a pastor. I mean, like when we announced it, my kids, this will give a barometer. My kids are like, oh, I thought Wayne was already that. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. So that wasn't a surprise. But when we did it, we talked to all a lot of people just to kind of gauge was that the spirit. And from the, you know, the lead team to our elders to my job at the time, everybody's like, yeah, that seems like God, let's do it. Mm. So it seemed right to me and to those who we were in leadership with. And so we stepped into it. And then when 2020 came, 
um, there arose kind of struggle within broader redemption and the opportunity for me to step into like a, uh, uh, interim role at a, at Peoria congregation. Right. And during that time, God kind of orchestrated some of these things. So we called ourselves co-lead, but just because history and the people in the church and time, like even though Wayne and I felt no difference between us, people in our congregation were like, Aaron's really the lead guy. You sure. know what I mean? And there's like, because of history and time and leadership and yeah, sure. the way people are, have been looking to me forever. So it was hard to adjust. God removing me for a while, about eight months. While you served at Peoria. While I served at Peoria was some of the mm. leveling of that. Yeah. Um, to where now, not only I do think we really are a co-lead, I would say Wayne probably does more of the local leadership than even Sure. Well, he's there probably, except for when he's on vacation or something, he's yeah. there almost every Sunday. Exactly. You have more Sundays where you're preaching at other congregations yes. or... Yep. doing other things. Yeah. So th- th- that kind of gets us to, uh, I guess, y- your overall sort of role in jobs. You have multiple jobs that yeah. you do. Yeah. Um, tell us about what those are. So I, I've always worked multiple jobs. I've loved it. I worked as a paint. You know, when we met, I was running a painting company at the time. And yep. then God opened the door for me as through circumstances to work for Redeemer City to City through Surge. So that's kind of one, maybe two uh, jobs. So Redeemer City City is like a church planting kind of organization, uh, networking of network of networks and surge, which is something that redemption was huge a part of in birthing, um, is a local network in the city. I get to work for that. And my role there, I'm on the executive team there and kind of work in planting amongst kind of the marginalized and the vulnerable. So focused on kind of bivocational leaders, church planting, and then helping run, you know, um, working with and releasing and helping yeah. people in the So if someone's going to come to Phoenix and plant a church, there's a good chance they're going to end up on your radar. Yeah. And if sure. someone's going to plant in a more under-resourced place, there's a really, really good chance a really good they're going to end up on your yeah, radar. absolutely. And uh, you're going to help them. And and that really is, is part of our hope as redemption, yeah. right? We've talked internally I, I think this has maybe been mentioned at different points uh, on this podcast yeah. or in other places that you know right now i think of the 10 congregations four are in a more resourced kind of community yep one is in more under resourced or you really go eight and two yeah um and uh we'd love to just prioritize the investing of churches uh, and church planting in some of those more under-resourced places. That's right. You know, it's been said that there's no God-forsaken communities. There's just church-forsaken that's communities. That's right. And um, so that's something that we're doing, and that's something that you obviously have a big role in is kind of helping people uh, with the heart for more inner-city and under-resourced places that's to go, right. here's how you do it. Yeah. And I, I feel like one of the things that God specifically, you know, even going through the story and processing this, just watching how God's kind of wired me and where he's put me. And at this, let's say, second half of my life in ministry, I really feel the burden to kind of like go, how do we take what what is in, you know, the gospel, empower some and serve some leaders who are in these communities who feel forgotten often and how do we surround them? And particularly, not just broader than redemption, but 
in redemption, I think one of the uniquenesses of Redemption Church's vision for planting in a city is is this. It's just not many models that are purposely going, we're going to plant in neighborhoods that probably will cause us to lose money, you know? Yeah. And that's well, not... What's been interesting is I've thought about redemption. You know, I feel like there's kind of like four different contexts yep. that redemption congregations exist in, you know? So there's... Uh, kind of a working poor context, kind of an urban working poor. Yep. There's what I would call like kind of urban hipster. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. There's kind of college campus mm-hmm. communities, and then there's like suburban. Yeah. There's probably a few congregations that would you straddle know, some of those. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of all four, and that's just pretty interesting to me because I feel like so many multi-site churches that we interact with and connect with, and this isn't a bad thing. Um, but they tend to have sites or locations or campuses or congregations, whatever, in very similar kinds of communities to each other. Yep. And I think it's one of the biggest blessings in redemption. I also think it's one of the biggest challenges. It's a huge challenge. And I think the the easy way and the the more typical way, because I, we, you know, with all the circles I get to run in, there's tons of church planting networks and then churches that are multi-site that are planting. And I went into one, you know, I've been into multiple, but they all have a similar strategy and are, they're not hiding it. So it's not like I'm making this up, right? Like they had a map of all the churches that they planted. And so I asked, I said, why in all these neighborhoods? Well, they said, well, all these neighborhoods are where our people are. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where people are that we are targeting and that the people are that sure. we serve and they have a certain type of person that, that, that is mm-hmm. that church's type of person sure. and wherever they are, we're going to put a church there. Well, th- what redemption has tried to do, and I'm, I know it's massively challenging is go, there's not a type of, of a type of person that is a redemption person mm-hmm. and go, how can we serve and resource and care for all people um, and all neighborhoods, which is going to bring a lot more challenge and and it's going to make a lot more and we've experienced it. And I think we've paid some, you know, some cost for that, but it's interesting. You know, I think we talk about this often. I think uh, Schrader said, Tom Schrader said something that just resonated with me early when we came on. He's like, we chose the most expensive, uh, hardest or what, you know, time consuming way, something to that effect where he's like, we chose the hardest way, but it's better, yeah. you know? And I, I, I love that. I love that. We're trying to dive into some things that when well, we feel the yeah. gospel call to be fair. To. I, I don't know that either of us would believe that people are who are doing the other thing are just trying to do what's easy. Yeah, sure. I think it's more, just a, here's what's familiar. Yeah. And true. I think, um, because especially of the, the relationships and some of the unique giftings of some of the folks in redemption, it's created enough proximity and enough exposure and enough relationship yeah. and enough connection to where you start to go, oh, wow, now I'm starting to be familiar with people I wasn't familiar with before. Yeah, that's a good point. And I want to stay connected to them. I yeah. see the value of that, and um, but it is it is harder, and yet it's so much richer. It, it, it really is like, I mean, that's what heaven's going to be like. Uh, I agree with you. You know, uh, times, you know, a thousand, a thousand. when you think about yeah. all the cultures of the world and all of that. So. Well, even with the way that redemption is structured and set up has helped me to see like there's way to be family across the city that allows each family to contextualize and love each other. I like when I came out and preached at Gateway, I felt so at home, bro. I mean, honestly, I feel like it couldn't be more different from my context, but it still felt like home. 
you know, yeah. because of the love of people and the acknowledgement, there's some humility there. And this is not to like downgrade other churches. This is just to say what God's doing here. Right. And I think that there's a uniqueness to it that is being recognized And the, the benefit of me to be able to be in these other networks has been, there are so many networks that are trying different things. And there's, there's some attention that's being given like what, how is this, how's this happening in Phoenix in such a way, not perfect, but how is this happening? There's something special that God's doing in redemption that I'm just really thankful to be a part of. Mm. And I think sometimes we can miss those like things when you're in the, when you're in the hustle of it all the time, sure. we can miss like, wow, there is kind of some cool things that God's doing and some difficult and painful things well, that I think I've about, really been thankful for. You know, one of the images that Jesus uses a bunch and the scriptures use a lot is the image of, of leaven, mm. you know, and um, Jesus warns to be careful about what you kind of let yeah, leaven good. your life. And that idea of leavening is this, you know, this kind of smaller stuff that eventually kind of influences everything. Yeah. And one of my hopes with redemption is that we all can be kind of a leavener for each other. I love that. You know, where it's like, you know, gateway is not going to ever look like Flagstaff. And yes. Alhambra is never going to look like yes. Al- Arcadia. Yeah. And that's okay. But those congregations can, can help leaven each other that's and beautiful. bring some of the more beautiful, you know, you know, I guess it, in some stuff it'd be like best practices. Yeah. But more than that, just kind of a, a heart for the Lord and a heart for ministry and a heart for what it looks like to be family. Why would have that family resemblance and yet go, we're different. That's my brother's family. That's not, you know, exactly. Some of the, it's interesting. We're filming this or recording this right when we're in the countercultural series. I I don't know if when it releases, we'll have it the same, but we just did the vulnerable and one of the things that I think makes the church and scripture unique when it comes to countercultural around the vulnerable is we don't just care for them. There's not really many mm-hmm. cultures yeah. that would say, oh, I don't care about them, right? And may- maybe they, in practice they would show they don't care. But they always throw the asterisks of like, oh, I care for them, but right. that doesn't mean, you know, every political side thinks they yeah, care for them. Yeah, nobody's like the vulnerable. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Forget them. I'm, them. I'm not going to care for them. But you have to say it. So because they feel uncared for, often you go, oh, no, I really do care. I just I just care about these things too, and I care about you have to like expand. But the idea when it comes to the church is not just a people that cares for the vulnerable. They do community with the vulnerable. Well, and, and, and then not just go, I care about you, but I need you. I need you. Yeah. And that is so different yeah. because any of us, hey, let's send them money. Let's take care of them. But to do community, and I, I'll just say, like, to be a part of the congregation that took us a long time to find our tribe, if you will, um, because we could do affinity type groups where we just we only get into a church kind of network or whatever that has a bunch of inner city churches that we can sit around and and and, and have community that way. There's that's an easy on ramp, and I have a well, ton it, of friends like that. And but that's going to come naturally. That's natural. And you're going to do it anyway, and you're going to benefit from it. It, there's a lot of benefit, and and I still have those relationships sure. in some of those networks. But to be in redemption for us, I tell people all the time, I have never felt like we're the ones that have nothing to bring to the table, and we're just receiving money from the from the man. I've never felt that way. I've always felt like our congregation has received resources, and I, I'm so thankful for that. We've received help. We've received care, but 
we've also received what we really wanted, which was community. And we've had friendships in ways that could never have happened unless, you know, there was this commitment to go, we don't want to just, you know, we don't want to just be with churches that look like us. Gateway could have done the same thing or, or Arcadia could have done the same. We could, we could have all just gone, what looks most like us and kind of created something that goes, that's our niche. And that's not bad. And people do that all the time. I'm just saying that's the, that's the natural kind of progression, but to, to go, how do we do community? And then to think of this three to one or whatever God does with this, to say we want to build that into how we plant in the future is a is is a beautiful thing to go. How do we keep allowing the vulnerable to not just receive care, but to have a voice to the to the overall thing that's happening yeah. is beautiful to me, and I hope that that becomes a huge part of our DNA. Yeah. Well, brother, I feel like we could just go on and on. I mean, I, there's a hundred other things <laughs> yeah, that I uh, could ask you about because I feel like you're so interesting. I mean, you are like jamie fox so, jamie fox i'll take it um but uh but man this has been sweet and and really helpful and uh, i learned some things about you i didn't know and so that's that's pretty great uh and i'm i'm gonna have to go i'm gonna have to go try to find some clips somewhere of of the daily brothers singing <laughs> yeah. or something i'll send you some but okay. you can't put them out <laughs> <laughs> well we'll see about that if i find if i find them if you find a few they're you're coming out so. but, i have uh, one suggestion this may be kick cut one time we need Luke to be in this chair getting interviewed and I need to interview him. Okay. That's what we need to do. We need to have the inside redemption where Luke gets on the hot seat. Let's do it. <laughs> Your story needs to be heard too. <laughs> we'll do that another time. Another day. Yeah. That sounds fun. I'd, I'd enjoy that. Well, thanks for listening y'all. Uh, we appreciate that you uh, would take the time to care about this and uh, yeah, we, we love you a lot and uh, hope it blesses you. So have a good one. Aaron, thanks again. Thanks, man.